everyone, and welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today we are going to do something that we have not done since season two of our show. Which is kind of crazy because honestly, it feels like we just did it. Wait, you too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also felt that. That's wild. Basically, what Emily and I are alluding to is the fact that back in season two of National Treasure Hunt, we dedicated three entire episodes to a deep dive character analysis for each of National Treasure's three principal characters. You know, one episode for each of them. And that's what we're going to do today for Jess Valenzuela from National Treasure Edge of History on Disney+. And I... The more I got into preparing for this, M, the more I remembered how much I liked these episodes. Yeah, I remembered how, like, philosophical I tried to get. (laughs) So, uh, hopefully that's entertaining for people and I'm not boring anyone. It was also such an interesting experience preparing for this one because we have had substantially less time with this character than we have with Ben, Abigail, and Riley, which sounds counterintuitive because we have 10 episodes of Jess and just two movies of the other characters, but like literal time, like the number of watches, the amount of time we've had to get to know the characters, way longer for our OGs. And so I found that that made the preparation for this Jess character analysis both challenging, but also potentially a more pure version of the exercise at hand. Yeah, there's definitely less of a nostalgia factor. Yeah, it's like less tainted, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's, uh, before we dive in, we obviously have some business to get to. The first piece of business, as always, is that Emily, you and I really have to acknowledge how seven seasons now into National Treasure Hunt, we have fallen catastrophically deep into the pit beneath Parkington Lane. Um, We're right down there with Shaw at this point. This is our screams from Parkington Lane. Ah! All right, Em, hit me. What scream you got today? So uh, I was uh, in the car with my fiance, Josh. We were uh, talking about... Uh, modern family for some reason i'm gonna bring this back around we actually didn't start with ty burrell uh okay. we started with the actor that plays cam um oh. and josh was talking about how it was so interesting to him because he had seen cam on modern family or the actor that played cam on modern family but apparently he's also in csi which is a show that josh like really likes and in csi he's a very dry character who does not make jokes and his job is a handwriting analyst and i immediately said oh like the guy from the props department for the president's secret book and national treasure too oh my god wait can we talk about how i really thought when you brought up modern family you were gonna say something about ty burrell and that's how you were gonna bring it around but that's why i said we didn't start with ty burrell oh you said start with and so i was like so we're ending with ty burrell that's that's a good one i like it thank you thank you uh what about you so at the time of this recording um my birthday was a couple of weeks ago and 
my partner Brian had uh, gotten me as actually both gifts he got me were very national treasure themed. Um, but the one in question here, um, he actually got me a uh, escape room in a box from Finders Seekers. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So Emily and I both received um, Finders Seekers boxes from Disney PR when they were promoting Edge of History. Um, and Brian and I did that one together. And he got me one that was Washington, D.C. themed. And it was Freemason themed. Like, it was... I don't know. I was borderline taking offense to it um, because it was so on the nose. And um, so we spend like 45 minutes doing this puzzle thing. And the last stage, Emily, I kid you not, there was a constitution, U.S. constitution. And every five lines of the constitution is marked with a number. And I literally looked at him as soon as I saw this. I didn't even need the instructions yet. I said, Brian, they're doing an Ottendorf cipher with the Constitution. <laughs> Wonder where they got that idea from. And they did. I wasn't even wrong. They literally it was at the last stage of the entire hunt was an Ottendorf with the Constitution. I posted about it on our Instagram, but like it simultaneously made me really happy and really angry. That feels accurate for you as a person. <laughs> <laughs> Those mix of emotions <laughs> that coexist often in your head. Yeah. Especially related to national related treasure. to national treasure, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my scream. Amazing. Um, yeah. So I don't know. We're we're really not good at transitioning from screams into our next order of business. So we're just gonna dive right in. Um, as you all know, we also have a really fun thing going on where we are collaborating with Clio, a women-owned candle company focused on olfactive and sensory history. We've developed a candle inspired by the olfactive history of the, basically of Independence Hall at the time of the signing of the declaration. Um, you can go check out the candle and place an order if it's back in stock at the time of this, <laughs> uh, of this publication, because it has been selling out, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, you can go to Explore Clio, that's K-L-E-I-O dot com to check it out. Um, but today, you know, each episode we've been telling you a little bit about the process of developing the candle, and today we get to tell you a little bit about the most fun part, <laughs> which, which was receiving, I think it was eight mm -hmm. formulations, like candle formulations in the mail from our collaborator at Clio, and we actually got to like smell them and light them and smell them again and rank order, like narrow down to find, the, to pick the formula. We did. I have to say, I don't know how you felt, Aubrey, but when I got the box, I was like, how am I going to tell these apart? <laughs> that was my initial thought. I was like, I, how? And then I smelled them and was like, oh, no, they're different. Yes, that's the thing is, okay, so the, the way this works is we told you on our last episode how we narrowed down like what fragrance notes would go into the candle and so these formulations each had different like proportions of those notes and so um I just remember Emily opening the box and just it wafting like just scent when the box opened I thought that was really wild and then I found the narrow down process really stressful in part because I was worried I was going to get nose blind, basically. 
And in part because I was worried you and I would not come to a consensus on a scent. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, as with most things, we did not at first. <laughs> we got around to it, but yeah. um, yeah, I think it was interesting. I noticed that uh, what we observed smell-wise in the candles, I feel like was different from one another, even mm -hmm. though we would be like smelling the same candle. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, if you have not treated yourself yet to the videos that we made, please go ahead and check them out because we happened to film ourselves smelling these candles, both lit and unlit, because that's, those are two different smells. And, uh... We had some fun thoughts about them. Absolutely. And you can find those videos on our social media. You can. So you can find them uh, and us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. Uh, you can find literally everything else about us aside from, you know, our day jobs and our bathroom schedules at nthuntpodcast.com. Uh, please, if you have not already, for some odd reason, go ahead and order our book, National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy, at TuckerDSPress.com. And we have a, I don't even know if I can say newly launched anymore, Patreon uh, that has three character-based tiers where you can support us and get exclusive bonus content. You can find us there at Patreon.com slash NTHuntPodcast. Yes, now that we have so many platforms, we're really trying to do y'all solid and just make everything the handle NT Hunt podcast. So if you're ever in doubt, try that. <laughs> <laughs> Good rule of thumb. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, time to get to it. The meat of this episode, our Jess Valenzuela character analysis. Okay, so basically we are going to run this episode Format-wise, the same way we did back in season two for Ben, Abigail, and Riley. Um, for those who don't remember, that means we're going to start out with an overview of the character's background so that we're all on the same page knowing the same information about our character um, and not forgetting anything. Then the bulk of this episode is where Emily and I play a little game where we pitch each other the top adjectives that we think of when we think of Jess Valenzuela. And we're going to try to argue our case for why our analysis is best using lots of examples and context and scenes from Edge of History. The only difference between our season two character analyses and this one is because Jess is sort of inspired by Ben, um, during each adjective analysis, if you will, we will also compare the adjective to Ben to see if Jess and Ben are similar in that case. Then we'll wrap up with two shorter sections, Emily's classic patriarchy corner. It's back, y'all. Down with the patriarchy, down with the <laughs> patriarchy. And then we'll wrap up with our actor comparison. So comparing Jess to the, the woman who portrays her, Lizette Oliveira. Um... Sound good, Em? Am I missing anything? Um, Just that this is going to be so much fun. Yes, I am stoked. So let's jump right in with our overview of who Jess Valenzuela actually is. All right. So 
as we hopefully all know and remember, uh, Jess is a Latina woman, and she's around 22 years old at the time of the storyline in Edge of History. She was born in Mexico, and her father's name was Rafael Rios, and her mother's name was Manuela Valenzuela. Now, you know, we obviously learn all the details I'm about to give you throughout the season. We're going to kind of put it in a more logical order and not go chronologically here. So we do end up learning that Jess's father, Rafael, was descended from the Daughters of the Plume Serpent, um, or as I affectionately refer to them in my notes as the Dops. Um, and the fancy like treasure protector necklace that Jess has uh, was given to her from her father based on this lineage. Um, we are meant to assume, especially early on in the show, that Raphael was killed um, while seeking the Pan-American treasure that will become the basis of the show. Jess ends up moving to Baton Rouge with her mom when she was just a baby, basically to escape Salazar and Cross S. Nostrum, who I affectionately refer to in my notes as CEN. Um, Jess is a DACA recipient. Um, for those of you who are not super familiar with what DACA is, it means that Jess was brought into the country, into the United States, illegally when she was a child. So as long as she follows certain procedures and rules, she won't be deported and is eligible to work, um, which is where we find her. Following her time at a prep school, where she apparently graduated as valedictorian, Jess turned down full-ride scholarships to take care of her mother, who was dying, um, and now that her mom has died, Jess is basically in debt paying off her medical bills. She's not like back in school or anything. So she's in a job that she pretty much hates. She's working at a storage facility. And then throughout the season, she'll become a waitress. But her dream is to work for the cryptanalysis division of the FBI. Her main skills, I think we would say, are puzzle solving and observation, like noticing minute details. And I think that the biggest differences between her and Ben, despite the fact that she is inspired by Ben as a character, would mostly be her age um, and therefore a general lack of formal relevant training for treasure hunting. So compared to Ben, who you know has his degree in American history and mechanical engineering and the diving and all of that, um, Jess doesn't have that. Jess also hasn't spent any of her life treasure hunting previously, whereas we are meant to believe that's kind of all Ben has done. And that might end up making some viewers question the believability of the Edge of History story, since Jess really is jumping into this for the first time and finds a treasure in basically a month. <laughs> I didn't even mean for that to be a critique. It's just an observation. I'm being Jess. I'm observing my new details. Mm. Good. well done good good job Aubrey <laughs> um does that I feel like that's that's what we know about her right I don't think I'm missing anything I don't think you're missing anything that we won't get into okay obviously she's surrounded by a, a cast of characters all of her friends and I think at the end of this episode we should decide whether we might want to dedicate character analysis episodes to the friends later on but we can see how this goes <laughs> yeah so Aubrey why don't you start me off with your first adjective uh, describing Jess? Okay, so you're going to have to go with me on a journey here. My adjective number one is observant. 
comma, bordering on psychic question mark. So to me, when I was thinking, when I was doing this episode prep, um, again, like we mentioned at the beginning, I found this to be a really pure exercise because I was left trying to come up with like the flash judgment. Like, what do I think of when Jess Valenzuela pops into my head? And to me, the most defining characteristic of Jess, and unfortunately also perhaps the most unrealistic, is how much she notices things that are at best subtle and at worst totally random. And it kind of makes me wonder, to be honest, if as a character she's supposed to have an eidetic memory, because to me that's the only way this is even remotely believable. Have you thought about that before? Oh, yeah. I definitely was getting, like, Sheldon vibes Sheldon Cooper Sheldon Cooper for sure yeah who is I find an unbearable character (laughs) (laughs) for other reasons well I think the difference between Sheldon it's interesting because Sheldon does have an eidetic memory but the difference is the eidetic memory is just a quirk of his and it never really doesn't often play into the actual storyline of an episode whereas the eidetic memory components for Jess are the only way the episode story works. Basically, the first time this becomes really blatant, and I would argue almost uncomfortably blatant and obvious, is probably when Jess uses the details of the photograph that Sadusky gives her to recreate the scene in the Masonic Lodge. You know, she looks at this and she's noticing all the details in the photograph and she's deciding that the position of Sadusky's hands and the positioning of the gavel are important. And then she's noticing without a second of hesitation that one of the stars on the altar in the lodge is different from the others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? These are minute details that she's able to act on in an instant. And the plot, the movement of this episode is fully dependent on that. Very true. But I would argue that this characteristic most comes into focus at a time that you're going to completely agree with me here, Emily, for the once in my life, I can say that with confidence. When she's sitting on the bus with the first box, I think it was the Obsidian one, and she notices all the symbols on the box and realizes that this is a story and she knows exactly what the story is with one try um i remember you being irritated by this scene as well <laughs> i mean yeah like there she, she was making up a story in her head like there, there was no basis for it so it's at this point when i'm remembering these scenes that i'm starting to convince myself that her skill is actually less observant but more like psychic all-knowing super freaking lucky i'm not really sure (laughs) what i what i mean by this you know most of the moments that she's lauded for being observant she's actually being lauded for her ability to solve a puzzle using minute details that literally no one can or should know about without backstory and she has no backstory to work off of in these instances it's not like it's not like um, for the box and the like turning the dial so that the puzzle box opens and for creating the story. It's not like she was referencing a story passed down in her family for generations. She literally just made it up. So yeah, that's true, and it, it makes me wonder if like maybe they did have like that. Maybe like in the script or something, or like you know in 
the heads of the writers that was something that it was like some kind of story related to her childhood but like if, if that information's not passed on to the audience then like we have nothing to go off of you know totally and not only that but that only answers that one scene that doesn't for example answer the scene in the masonic lodge when she just knows to hold the gavel in this position and at this angle and look at where the light hits off of it and put put the the gavel into the star and then turn the star and then it makes something like you know what i mean so this is partially why I feel like this characteristic of Jess feels so forced and, and kind of unrealistic. Um, and I don't, it's not a critique on the actress at all. If anything, it's a little bit of critique of the writing. Yeah, I definitely, some of my adjectives, uh, you'll see me mention, I have some some thoughts about like, I don't know if this was like a character thing or if this was like just the way that the character was written to be. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So ultimately, do I think this characteristic is similar or different from Ben? Um, I think this is extraordinarily different from Ben. And I find that interesting. Well, I'll explain why, and then I'll tell you why that's interesting. I would say that in situations where Jess uses her quote-unquote observation skills, psychic skills, if you prefer, I would say that Ben uses his straight-up knowledge of history. And I think this is why the clues appear so different in Edge of History compared to National Treasure. Because, like, while National Treasure clues require historical prowess, basically a historical backstory that someone could have learned in school, many Edge of History clues, especially early in the season ones, don't really require historical knowledge, but rather an ability to solve puzzles or riddles. And we have talked about this on the podcast before. Um I would actually say as soon as historical knowledge comes into question in Edge of History, we start seeing Jess falter. For example, her conviction that the twin-tongued serpent clue refers to Malinche and only realizing later on that it refers to Sacagawea. We would never see Ben make a mistake like this, whether that's realistic or not. Yeah, I would argue that, that that maybe that's not the most realistic character trait of Ben's, that he would never make a mistake like that. Um, but I do think it's interesting because I also, I, I fully buy, like, I don't think we would have seen ever Ben make that mistake, but also like, is that luck that he, or is that just like, because they want to move the movie along, right? No, so they're it's only giving us one shot. Like, no, I don't absolutely know. not. I think it's entirely because they want you to believe he knows everything there is to know about history and they're going to give him the degrees to back it up. I actually think going back to edge of history, I think Billy has more moments of flashing historical expertise than Jess does, which like makes sense because she like Ben has been pursuing historical and for her entire life so I almost wonder if as a character Jess's age works against her all right hear me out by being young she can't have accumulated the historical knowledge that we grow to admire in a character like Ben and that ends up kind of shooting Jess in the foot by making her journey through the season seem less believable and the reason, just to circle back, I think this is so interesting that this is so different from Ben is, again, when I do my adjectives, I try to think of them in the order that they come to mind. So this is the first thing I thought of for Jess, and yet she's supposed to be our Ben character, and I, I couldn't find them more different in this respect. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I really, that's a very, uh, that's a very interesting uh, thought process, and I, I think it, you know, without retreading too much on, you know, 
like you said, what we've what we've spoken about in past episodes, I do think it, you know, fundamentally comes down to, you know, the way that the the stories uh especially are are built. Like Ben is, you know, like you said, supposed to have all of the knowledge and like is just supposed to have all the knowledge. It doesn't seem like it. Um, but I also very much agree with the whole like young aspect of things that was actually going to be one of my adjectives. And I was going to start off by being like, I know this feels super obvious, (laughs) but I promise you it leads to a lot of things. But then I saw that you had it there. So I did not choose young. Um, but I do think that that's one of the reasons why we see her honestly as so different from Ben is because I think we would be able to make an argument like if she did have all of this historical information and like didn't make any mistakes and stuff like that. Like, I wonder if we would view that as realistic. Absolutely. You know, because yeah. It's like, I mean, she, yeah, she was valedictorian, like all that, that kind of stuff. Like she doesn't have these lofty degrees. She's not been doing this for that long. So like in that sense, yeah, her being young makes her very different from Ben, which is interesting. Okay. Emily, that was my first adjective. What was yours? So my first adjective was single-minded. Um, and so I will say, this is what I was alluding to earlier. I am not sure if this is an actual representation of the character of Jess as a whole person or more in how she was written slash like what we got to see of her. Because although we've talked about the fact that with a television show, obviously we get more time with characters than we do in a movie, there's also more plot to move along right Mm -hmm. so we had fewer beats with like the characters just kind of hanging out like they were it seemed like they were always doing something and so I feel like we didn't get the we kind of just saw like what Jess was doing in a given moment not what like all of what Jess's life encompassed right so anyway My logic behind this is that Jess seems to have a tendency to get very invested in one specific thing to the point where she kind of like loses track of other things or people. And like you said earlier, Aubrey, this is not a judgment on her as a person, like Jess as a person, just an observation. Um, I think the best example I have of this is her trying to solve the like EM phasma, right, clue um, basically, instead of doing her job at right. the storage unit place, um, it was made clear, uh, to me at least, that she really didn't value her job at the storage unit place, um, which was interesting because, like, that's how she was getting money, so she theoretically should have valued it. Um, and I think we were supposed to view her boss as being a jerk, which he definitely wasn't the nicest person. But also she wasn't really like doing the basics of the job she was hired to do Mm -hmm. because she was so focused on solving this clue, right? And this becomes problematic because, as you mentioned, she's in debt. She needs a job for money and stuff. So honestly, she ends up kind of hurting herself with this like single-minded focus. Now, another example is you see this when she decides to go to Mexico even though she will likely not be able to re-enter the country right she never full out says like i will not be able to re-enter we know 
probably not gonna be able to re-enter but like she kind of goes with like i probably won't be able to get back in right mm -hmm. she is so focused on finishing the treasure hunt or i mean in this case more likely proving her mom's innocence or whatever honestly i'm still confused on what the ultimate goal here was <laughs> <laughs> but she's so focused on whatever this thing is that she literally doesn't seem concerned that she won't be able to re-enter the country. She actually seems to kind of, like, accept this as an acceptable consequence for what she's doing. Like, she just kind of is like, yep, yeah, this is probably going to happen, but this is the thing I'm focused on, so I'm going to do it. Um, and what I will say, and this does go against my argument slightly, I'm not great with these uh, single single focused adjective things is that Jess does seem to care about her friends okay so she doesn't seem so single-minded that she completely loses track of them I would I, I can help you here I think I think that sometimes her care for her friends can add to this single-mindedness and add to the like the single-mindedness informing the way she makes decisions around her friends. I'm going to end up talking about this scene later with one of mine, but what comes to mind here is when she decides that she is going to pursue the Alamo clue without her friends because she doesn't want, like she cares so much about them. She doesn't want them to get hurt, et cetera. Or here's another one. Actually, I, I, this just popped into my head. When she goes against Tasha's wishes to go to the FBI in like episode one or two, um, when Oren, she's so worried about Oren being kidnapped by Billy that she's like, the only thing I can do is pr to protect him is go to the FBI. And Tasha's like, I did not agree to this. And then they go any like, she's kind of not caring about Tasha's feelings there, but really, really, really caring about Oren's and like the single track mind. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's a great point. Um, and I think, so the reason I wanted to like bring this up, I'm not going to go through my examples because you just said them. Um, but uh, the reason I wanted to bring th this up with the friends component is because it, to me, seems very interesting for a, typically when I see a character that is very like single-minded, I don't see them caring about their friends very much right mm -hmm. like that's not something that i'm used to seeing in these representations so this takes me to sheldon from the big bang theory right like his lack of care and interest for his friends is very apparent uh because of his single-minded focus um more of a niche one but even buffy from buffy the vampire slayer she's also very single-minded very laser focused and doesn't often have time to really care about her friends that much so like I'm not used to seeing this. I I see that. I think you're being generous with some of these other characters, though. I think Jess is definitely single-minded. And I think you can definitely say that Sheldon and Buffy in those cases are single-minded. But I think you could get away with going one step further with them and saying that they're selfish. Whereas Jess is not selfish, but she is single-minded. True. Very true. Uh, so, is this similar or different from Ben? Um, <laughs> once again, not great at this part. I would say a good mixture, honestly. So, we have, or I have at least, made references to Ben being somewhat single-minded on his treasure hunts. Um, Patrick also <laughs> makes these references <laughs> to Ben directly uh, and to the audience, uh, although not breaking the fourth wall. Uh, 
Ben does seem to get very wrapped up in one thing at a time. So think like the Charlotte and then all the effort and money that he put into that. Now you get the sense that his single-mindedness is partially what pushed him and Abigail apart between the first and the second movie as well. I got that sense because that was a plot point that I really cared about, but I was like, he's so focused on like this history and treasure stuff and blah, blah, blah. That like, that is part of the reason that they got pushed apart. Um, Ultimately, I will say I don't see this as like a good or bad thing for either character, uh, though it's definitely considered, in my opinion, more okay uh, for Ben to do because Ben is older and he seems to have like some money, right? (laughs) So there's slightly less like day-to-day surviving life risk for him to be having a very singular focus um also the patriarchy we'll we'll get back to this at the patriarchy corner um whereas with jess obviously like this day-to-day focus uh or this day-to-day living is very important she needs her job so like please do not spend your time solving this clue when like you need to be doing the job that somebody has hired you to do um overly though i'd say Ben can be pretty single-minded or passionate, uh, but maybe we notice it less. So I don't know. Interesting to think about. Okay. Okay. I like that. My first one, they were super different from each other. Your first one, they're actually pretty similar. kind of evens out. It does. So what's your next one? All right. So I'm getting really creative with what, what um, the definition of an adjective is. My second adjective is nothing to lose. <laughs> Not even one wording in anymore. Not even trying to hyphen. Just <laughs> multiple words. No, it's just, yeah. I mean, well, adjectives describe people, places, and things. And I think that nothing to lose describes Jess. Okay? Okay. Hear me out. We did, in all of our episodes about Edge of History in the past season, criticize the way the show make split-second changes to its characters' outlooks and opinions. For example, Liam going from hating his grandfather and the treasure to being a part of the hunt, or Jess going from not caring about her dad to wanting to vindicate her family. Just like, to be completely fair, we have criticized Mitch's sudden change of heart moments in National Treasure 2, right? But in Jess's case, I think you can almost make her change of heart believable if she knows or at least thinks that she has nothing to lose. This is, this is something that we, the audience, I think could understand if she feels that way. I mean, think about it. She has no family really anymore, or at least she thinks she has no money. We spent a lot of time just discussing that. She has no education beyond high school and, you know, Not everyone needs a college degree, but she also doesn't have any training or apprenticeship in a skilled job, okay? At one point, she literally has no job, (laughs) right, in the middle of the season. And she certainly never has a job throughout the season that she actually cares about. No, they're just like, we need money to survive. This is what we're doing. Exactly. Now, Emily, you might look at me and say, but she has her friends, Would you say that? I mean, you kind of already did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in my third adjective that we'll get to momentarily, I will endeavor to explain why she might actually, in the context of all her other losses in her life, she might actually feel that her friends aren't as solid as they actually are. Again, we'll get to that later. 
I know, hot take, controversial opinion. But I think that if you go in with this perspective that Jess believes she has nothing to lose and then you go watch the show, I think you can see this mentality pop up in in several scenes. For example, I think it's really exemplified well in the Graceland episode. Remember, there's this whole thing that goes down where like they they get into the secret room. She's in the van. She knows she can't break into Graceland. Again, she has restrictions placed on her in terms of her DACA status and what she can and can't do that's illegal. Her friends go in, they get access to the secret room. Um but once they come out, they learn they didn't get the right information. So she, let's let's call it a um makes a single-minded decision, shall we, Emily? And rushes in to the mansion to find out what's on the La Paloma record. If she had gotten caught, she would have been arrested and likely deported. But she feels like she has nothing to lose because of all these things that are missing from her life or that have been taken from her in her life. What does she have to lose? Actually, I would say nothing to lose really comes to a head when she decides to go to Mexico to finish the hunt. Right? Because she won't be able to come back into the country, not legally anyway. Now she truly has nothing to lose once she's in Mexico, right? Like she's not in America anymore. So why not break her dad out of prison? <laughs> True. Because even if, like, if well, she, she doesn't, doesn't want to lose that last thing, her dad's alive. She do not want to lose that now. For, right? sure. <laughs> For sure. But I guess my point is even before she even like fully comprehends the fact that she's gonna have to break him out she's now in mexico her friends will not be with her in mexico she to her knowledge doesn't have family in mexico she barely like can fit in to the country there's that whole poignant scene about how she's too mexican to be in america and too american to be in mexico so literally what does she have to lose from breaking her dad out of prison i guess if she gets caught and gets thrown into prison she'll get to be with her dad too so that's almost... I don't like, think they would put them together. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like, she literally has nothing to lose. Okay? Now, I'm I'm no therapist, right? But I would venture a guess to say that Jess isn't exactly mentally healthy when we meet her at the beginning of the show, right? Her mom recently died, bad situation financially, hates her job. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if if depressed showed up in the writer's character sketch. You know what I mean? That's kind of where we're at here. So choosing to do something that will give her purpose or will give her meaning or will stimulate her in some way becomes a no-brainer for her as a character because in her view, she has nothing to lose. All right. Very interesting. Do you buy it? Oh, kind of. I'm going to actually take the mental health component at a slightly different angle in my next adjective. So I'll really? be interested to see if that if we feel that there are connections there. But so as to not spoil mine, I'm not going to say more. Well, this is so interesting. I didn't look at yours before I did mine. Did you look at mine before you did yours? Uh, not. I looked at your adjective. Okay. Not the expo. Oh, my God. We're getting a lot of the same like descriptions without even... Are we thinking, are we, do we, do we have the same? No, because once again, I think I'm taking it from a different perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So is this characteristic of having nothing to lose similar to or different from Ben? I'm going to take a cue from you here, Emily, and say both. Nice. 
obviously you can argue that Ben has nothing to lose because he's estranged from his father and the whole, you know, respected historical community thinks his family is a bunch of conspiracy theorists thing. You know, if he fails in to find the Templar treasure, he's really not going to be in a different position than he already is. So mm-hmm. from that from that perspective, yeah, I would say he doesn't really have much to lose. But where the difference comes into play here, I'm kind of ascribing the because she has nothing to lose mentality as one of the key drivers as to why Jess pursues the Pan-American treasure to begin with or why she's okay with pursuing it. That is obviously not the case at all for for Ben. It's not like the reason he pursues the treasure. Yeah, it would be nice to prove all the historians wrong, but like that's not it for him. We, we've never talked about that as a key motivation for him in seven seasons of our show. And, you know, because he has nothing to lose certainly isn't the reason he steals the Declaration of Independence, whereas you could argue that this is part of the reason Jess makes some of her massive moves, including breaking her dad out of prison. Ben, on the other hand, he steals the declaration because he feels a personal responsibility for its safety. And like, why does he care so much? Because of his reverence for history and what history means. I mean, honestly, would most people care enough about the symbolism of the physical declaration of independence to do what he did? No. And I can say that with confidence because we interviewed people on the street at the Lincoln Memorial asking them what it would take for them to steal the Declaration of Independence. And it was mostly considered a joke because obviously, because no one would actually do it. So the best similarity here is how Ben steals the Declaration to protect the Declaration from Ian, just as Jess, quote unquote, steals her dad to protect her dad from Billy. Even though we did argue that that rationale in Edge of History doesn't make complete sense based on the storyline. But we're going to ignore that for the purposes of this episode. So, And that's Aubrey's favorite scene because that's when Jess says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to break my dad out of prison. <laughs> okay, that was enough of that noise. <laughs> that needs to stop. <laughs> How I feel when you make noises every time we record. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so that's my second adjective. Emily, I'm really curious to hear what your second one is now that you hinted at this mental health component. Yeah, so uh, mine is brave slash resilient. Um, so this honestly, I recognize seems super cheesy, uh, especially in the context of like a treasure hunt. Right. Um, but I enjoy when people are portrayed in fiction, everybody, I feel like knows this by now as going through adversity and coming out on the other side of it. I think it's super realistic and can be very poignant. And so that's kind of my preface, right? I recognize that with this brave slash resilient thing, there are kind of like two streams of thought here, right? And I I think we can address them both. Um, first, first stream of thought, in the same way that we could have the crazy versus passionate debate, right, from National Treasure, I think it would be easy to have a brave versus reckless debate mm. when it comes to Jess and Edge of History, right? Is her going to Mexico to finish a treasure hunt when she might not be allowed back into the country reckless? Sure. Is it also brave? Yeah. Right? Same thing with breaking her dad out of jail. It is reckless, but it is also a brave thing to do. 
it really depends on what side of the coin, right, you want to look at it from. All that being said, I don't think that that stream of thought for this adjective is actually the most interesting interpretation because we either have or are going to talk about those aspects, right, in some way or another with our other adjectives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the second line of thought that I think is a little more unique here is that Jess is brave slash resilient with more kind of a focus on the resilient aspect of being brave. So when we use the word resilient, I think in general, it has a lot less of a negative connotation to it, right? We're less likely to portray somebody who's resilient in a negative light, right? And and yes, some may argue that resilient and brave are actually two different adjectives, but I think that they go hand in hand. So in my explanation of this, I, it's actually a little difficult for me to discuss one without the other, particularly in Jess's case. So if you remember, at the beginning of the show, Jess doesn't, right, think her dad is alive. She has been financially and physically caring for her mom, who dies right before the series starts. And she has had to put her own dreams and ambitions on hold. Literally, in many cases, opportunities that she may not get again. So think like full ride college scholarships, right? Those aren't usually things you can like put off for a couple of years and then be like, oh, I'll take that now, right? It's kind of like a one and done thing. She's put all this aside to deal with some really tough stuff. And honestly, for having gone through all of that, she seems pretty well adjusted. When you put it that way, complete agree. Very well adjusted when we <laughs> right? find her in this show. <laughs> and so this is not me saying that she is by any means perfect. She can definitely make some rash decisions and she definitely needs to go to therapy as I believe everyone does in life because therapy is great and we can all benefit from it and there's no shame in it and making time for yourself and your mental health is important. Okay, but we got it. <laughs> Jess is like living her life right like yeah. she's not perfect but she's she's doing what she needs to do she has friends and she has a job or two because she does get fired from the one and is living life now that being said she also still has dreams and goals right like i think it would be super easy for someone who's gone through all this to be like screw it you know it's not worth it but like her dreams and goals are like being a crypt analyst at the fbi that is a big, some would say unattainable goal, right? But she wants that. And she is not only wanting that, but vocalizing that, which in itself is super brave, right? Even though she now has to work like two times as hard, at least, as anyone else, because for all the reasons we've listed, right? She's not a citizen. She doesn't have financial or even emotional support from her parents. She's been out of school for a bit, right? She can't just jump back into these programs. But she is, she still has this dream. She still mm -hmm. has this goal. And she is being brave and resilient in going for it. It's really interesting. I, I don't disagree with anything you've said. Um, but I do think it's interesting that when you, you really emphasize resilient in this conversation, and I find it fascinating that most of the evidence for that comes from before the series even starts. Um, I guess you could say that she's resilient when, you know, her her plan with Billy doesn't work out as expected. So she 
pivots and and does something you know there are ways to argue resilience through the show as well i think it almost kind of transitions from a resilient being the primary characteristic here pre-show with the background even though it's limited background that we have about her to more brave once the treasure hunt starts would you agree with that um I understand where you're coming from. I don't know that I fully agree with that because I think I view resilience as like an ongoing. For sure. I mean, it's, you can't, you're not separating her past from her present. Like it informs the present, but like, there's no in the moment activities, not none, but there are far fewer in the moment examples of like where you would point, point to during the treasure hunt itself and say that is resilient. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess she she got knocked down a couple times. She got some clues wrong. She, you know, had to work with Billy. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's examples of resilience, but I get what you mean about how it's definitely less uh, straightforward when we talk about, like, very specific examples from the show, which is interesting because I think that that also gets a kind of, like, how you and I do these character analyses. I think I tend to, like, extrapolate a bit more right like to live life on the wild side yeah and you tend to be very specific with very specific examples whereas we both know that i'm not good with that so i tend to go a bit elsewhere <laughs> no it's interesting because when you do that i think you are making some conjectures based on things that we don't necessarily see and there's nothing wrong with that because it's interesting to think about based on what we do see what do we think happened when we when the cameras weren't rolling? Which is interesting, but different. So, okay, so you think Jess is brave slash resilient. Is Ben brave slash resilient? So I would say depending on how you choose to interpret the adjective, I would say you could honestly go either way with this one. Again, I know, surprising coming from me. I do think that Ben is brave and reckless. Uh, you kind of need to be if you're going to steal the Declaration of Independence and kidnap the President of the United States, right? We've kind of covered that. <laughs> I'm not sure how resilient I would consider Ben, right? Looking at the challenges he faces, aside from like the quote unquote like bad guys trying to get the treasure before him, he has his parents' divorce and his name not being well-respected in academic circles. Now, none of this is great, and I'm sure that we could really, right, or I especially could really delve into a lot there, right? But that being said, he's also white, and he's male, see my patriarchy corner, and he's older. And he has had the opportunity to get a good amount of high-quality education. So those challenges that he does have to face and be resilient through i feel like are almost made easier by the fact that he has these other advantages so all that's to say that ben definitely isn't resilient at least in my mind in the same way that jess is and that's not a bad thing right i think that jess's character was set up to need to be resilient Honestly, I would have enjoyed exploring that more, right? As you just alluded to, Aubrey. Uh, but I understand that that doesn't really make for compelling TV for most people, uh, or even a really great like national treasure related story, uh, because like just analyzing the mental health state and resilience of a character doesn't make for great treasure hunting. Um, and I say for a variety of reasons, Ben's character wasn't really like set up in the same way he's pretty established and he just kind of like 
he has some adversity, but he kind of does the thing. So in my mind, if I'm trying to compare Ben and Jess on this point, it's almost like comparing apples to oranges. Like it's really difficult for me to do. By definition, wouldn't that mean the answer to the question is Ben is not similar in this respect? I feel as though I cannot say because I think it is comparing apples and oranges. Apples and oranges. The whole purpose of that phrase is that apples and oranges are different. They're different, but they could have sim. Like they're both fruits. They both have seeds. Oh my like, god! You are hurting me right now. <laughs> Aubrey, what's your next adjective? Okay, my third adjective is gonna sound kind of dark. And it kind of is. My adjective is alone. Ooh. So I personally get the impression that although she is surrounded by her friends, which are ultimately her chosen family, she to some extent still feels alone. Now, there's a really literal interpretation to this, of course, right? She's alone because she's lost both of her parents, and she is alone at her job because her boss is awful and doesn't get her, you know, when she's working at the storage facility. Um, she, you don't ever see her interacting with any coworkers at the other job either, to be fair. And except for Liam. Except for Liam. Um and I would say it's also clear partway through the season that perhaps she feels a little, at least a little, alone in the context of her friends, too. So this is what I was alluding to before. So in, in thinking about this, I'm trying to put myself in Jess's position the best that I can, right? Throughout the show, she has different friends who, again, they are basically her family. Different friends are telling her that she can't or shouldn't do things, all right? You have Ethan telling her that she can't pursue the treasure in the first place and that she can't go into Graceland. And she has Oren telling her that he won't support her when she goes to break her dad out of prison, right? Things like this. Now, of course, we know as the audience, and I know, I believe she knows to a great extent as well, that they're doing this because they're worried for her. They're they're doing this because they're concerned, because they, even if she's single-minded, they're being a little bit less short-sighted, looking into the future and seeing how this will affect her negatively. But I would say that in some way, her friends having and exerting these opinions threatens to take away her own agency, which I would personally find I would find that to feel isolating. I mean, to some extent, I'm going to use a facetious comment here, but like, you'll get the picture. At some point, don't we all just want our friends to support us no matter what and just drop everything when we say we need help burying a body, right? Like, <laughs> is it like that. the memes, you see the memes online, right? Where that's the thing. It's like, you know, I need help burying a body when, where, I'll get the shovels, right? Like, that's the meme online. And that's, I think, what people crave in friendships. So there's that component. But more importantly, and this happens exactly in between those other scenes that I just mentioned with, like, Ethan and Oren, is the, there's the fact that Jess, like, intentionally picks a fight with Tasha on purpose 
so that Jess will go on alone to the Alamo with Billy. Now, Jess says she doesn't want to put her friends at risk. I fully believe that. But in the context of these other scenes and the bigger picture in her life where she is alone, and so to some extent will probably have internalized that aspect, I think that even subconsciously, she doesn't believe that her friends are going to want to take that risk. I mean, she has actually every reason to believe they won't want to. Ethan, for the aforementioned reason. Oren, because he was already kidnapped, right? in the context of all of this, and Tasha because of her reticence to interact with law enforcement if and when necessary, etc. Okay, so all of this, I would say, all of this lonesomeness gets turned on its head, obviously, by the time the devil swamp scene happens. Literally and figuratively here, like her friends are all in, but Jess also suddenly has a dad again, so she is literally not alone mentally or physically anymore. So I do think it would have been really interesting to see how this new dynamic would have played out in a second season since her friends are now fully bought in and she now has a parent, right? Like a, a figure in her life that is alive. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's my assessment. I, I do agree that is dark and deep. I like it. I'm proud of you for, for going to that like deep uh, mental health-ish level i i'll take the compliment thank you i i honestly wasn't even fully thinking of it from the, like the mental health perspective but like i said i was trying to put myself in her position in a way which i, I think this is the first time i've tried doing that um is this similar or different from ben well ben is formerly estranged from his father which i guess is a slight parallel to the lonesomeness story but I would say that the biggest thing that makes Ben alone is the fact that no one else like in the world really believes in the treasure, but him. Um, that's an, what that that's good. Yeah. Well, it's true. And that's another reason why Riley and Abigail are so important because they end up believing it. So now he not only has like the intellectual support, and the technical support that he needs, but now he has, like, almost the emotional support that he needs, too. Yeah. Uh, and then on the friends front, I guess it's so interesting because Riley seems to be a friend. Abigail, when they first meet, I mean, they're colleagues at best once she agrees to go on the treasure hunt, right? They're not really friends. But even so, Ben does seem to have more trust in these friends, Riley and Abigail, that they, like, want to be there and they are okay with the risks. He seems to believe that more than Jess believes that of her friends, at least up until Mexico, I would say, for Edge of History. Huh. Yeah. That is true and makes me also then wonder like is isn't an age thing like has ben had more life experience with different kinds of friends that he like trusts them more whereas like when you're younger you're a little like i don't know about like i don't know it's weird it is weird and it's it's doubly weird because when we think of national treasure the movies we don't really think of the friendship element between Ben, Riley, and Abigail, right? I mean, you, they are friends, but that's not like a defining feature. Whereas for Edge of History, it's a group of friends and the whole defining feature is friendship. And yet 
we buy into the French, I'm buying into the friendship a little bit more for National Treasure than I am for Edge of History. And I find that to be wild too. That's not something I was expecting to take out of this episode. Wow. Okay. Well, I hate to end this on a low note for these adjectives here. My next adjective is not uh, incredibly deep. Um, (laughs) We we exhausted all of our depth. (laughs) We did. And I kind of like, I was like, we're going to get to this third adjective. Like I was having trouble, but I also was like, we're going to get here. We're going to have been talking for a while. These episodes go long. We're still going to have a couple things to cover. So like, I'm going to be okay with choosing this adjective. Okay. So please don't judge me. Um, Skeptical in parentheses, mostly of people. Before you go any further, you were criticizing my adjectives on their adjectiviness, and you're doing the same thing. Skeptical is one word. Parentheses, mostly of people. Uh, that's just a caveat. So is comma borderline psychic question mark. Mm-hmm, okay. Um, <laughs> so in terms of the skeptical nature of Jess... As there, I feel like there's a song that says this. Not always for a long time, but for a good time. Uh, she, right? She, she's not always skeptical forever, but typically she's relatively skeptical at first. Um, so instead of going with like specific scenes, because I was thinking about it and I was like, no, she just jump into situations very quickly. When I was thinking, I thought about it right more in the context of people. So I thought I would go through a couple people. Uh, that okay. were in the series and kind of like discuss how she may have been skeptical of them. Sadusky, she definitely thought he was crazy <laughs> right away, right? She did not trust him right away. I would say she did jump into the trusting him like a little too quickly for my liking, just like in terms of I would not have done that. But she was skeptical at first, okay? Liam, Honestly, she remained pretty skeptical of Liam, I would say, for most of the show, right? She was skeptical at first, but even when it seemed like she had started to trust him, right? They had, like, kissed and stuff. As soon as Billy, like, framed him, Jess was like, yep, I knew it. He was bad the whole time. (laughs) Right? Like, there was no quite, no second thought. She was like, yeah. Mm -hmm." Very little faith. Um, Ethan. I feel like she doesn't always trust Ethan's motives, Uh, even though they're like childhood friends and arguably she should trust him like the most of her friends. I will say I understand not trusting Ethan's motives all the time because like the romance angle, which I'll get into in a minute in the patriarchy corner. Um, Law enforcement. This is understandable. She, you know, has DACA. She like, I get being not every law enforcement individual feels the same way, right, about these things, even though there are laws. And it's also understandable because of Tasha's views, right? Uh, Billy. Makes sense. We would hope she'd be skeptical of Billy. Um, Honestly, even though she, like, worked with Billy for a hot second, she really only did that because she had to, but she definitely, like, still did not trust her, right? Because that I remember that being a big thing where we're like, oh, she got in the car with Billy? Does she trust her now? And then the whole time you're like, oh, no, she knew she was not, not good. So I'd say her skepticism for Billy really held strong, which arguably you want to happen with the villain of your show. Uh, her dad. Understandable. <laughs> okay, so as Aubrey 
mentions and we've literally talked about before numerous times she switches her view on her dad very quickly um hence my not always for a long time caveat to this adjective but like yeah you think your dad's dead for your whole life and then you find out he's not let's be skeptical of him that feels fair um (laughs) perhaps some of this short-term skepticism explain some of the fast turns that just makes uh and which we've commented on in the series as a whole uh like she doesn't seem to ever really trust anyone fully right as you mentioned aubrey which Mm -hmm. is probably a situational thing and as i kind of alluded to earlier in response to one of your adjectives probably an age thing right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i do kind of wish this skepticism was like a little more consistent. Like I said, with Billy, it's pretty straightforward, but you would expect that. Um, But I understand why it is important to have a character with some amount of skepticism, but who also isn't just like never trusting anyone across the board, because honestly, that's just broody and not super compelling. (laughs) The more we talk this episode, the more I find myself wondering, like, are these, is the weird erratic behavior that Jess exhibits related to one thing or another is that behavior a result of the way this was written like almost accidentally she comes off as erratic or was it super like 10 levels deep and they wrote her as intentionally erratic because she's a young person to whom crazy things have happened i don't know that's the route i go but uh, yeah, we don't know. It could I could be really either. I don't think I mean if it's the second one, if it's the latter, I'm so impressed with the writers. I just I choose to be impressed. That you have to be you're that's like seven layers deep. It's yeah. like so meta. Can be good like that. They yeah. can be That's why you should pay them. You you should, absolutely. It's just I don't know. It's it's really interesting. Anyway, okay. Well, skepticism. Yeah. skepticism and ben do not even come out in the same breath for me oh no i would say pretty different here uh <laughs> uh not saying that ben was never skeptical of anyone we just don't really see it mm-hmm. right so we definitely see it with sadowski i will say that it is one place where ben's skepticism like holds true honestly ben is never really willing to like play all of his cards with sadowski rightfully so but even in the second movie right like even after they've like had their thing in the first movie and they like nobody like he didn't have to go to prison somebody did but not ben he's still not as he's still not playing all his cards um i'm sure there was some i'd like to believe there was some amount of skepticism with ian at the beginning of their relationship um just because it seems like ben knew that ian was like questionable right um but because that was is that relationship was established pre-national treasure we don't observe mm-hmm. that right um and then i just wanted to add this in as a little thing on the end here because i thought it was funny i would honestly say ben is almost too trusting and not skeptical enough of abigail um like he basically and i know i've said this a million times but it it astounds me to this day he basically tells her without saying the exact words but still kind of saying the words that he's gonna steal the declaration of independence which honestly iconic like that you can that you can tell her that in a crowded room and then have her not actually like put a plan in place with other people to stop you but instead just decide to like follow you (laughs) 
pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that is iconic is a good word there. I mean, don't quote me on this, but I'm vaguely remembering that in our Ben character analysis, one of the adjectives, it might have been mine, one of them was trusting, which is literally the opposite of skeptical. So like fully on board there. Yeah. Um, okay, so we played our adjective game. We pitched six adjectives to you all. We're going to want you to send us your adjectives. So start thinking them up while we wrap up with our patriarchy corner and our actor and character comparison. So Emily, you're up first with the patriarchy corner, which as a reminder for folks who didn't tune into season two or it's been a while, we're going to talk about, Emily's going to talk about, how the character of Jess either supports or overturns or how she experiences the patriarchy with some examples. So, Emily, over to you. Yes. Uh, so, as we uh, gentle listeners know, I tend to get a little heated uh, during the patriarchy corner of any episode that we do. Uh, and so I may speak quickly. That is both... Not on purpose, because I'm heated, but also on purpose, because, like, you know, we don't want to keep here too long. But these are important things, okay? We need to talk about them. So, I will say, to start off, I don't want to retread on too much of what we've talked about in past episodes, because with Edge of History, we have talked about the patriarchy. Um, but I will expand on some of the points from this episode specifically. Now, as we've said before, in many ways, Edge of History as a show is set up to subvert the patriarchy, okay? Even if the people who watched the show casually or incompletely didn't grasp that concept, that is how it was set up, okay? If I, you need me to repeat that, that is how it was set up, okay? <laughs> it was done on purpose. We don't have a male lead on purpose. It will believe it or not. It wasn't to piss you off. If you're you, you're not probably not listening to this anyway. Um, so literally, right, we have a female lead in what was and is a male-led franchise in a genre that is typically male-led, right? Literally, we're subverting the patriarchy right from the beginning. We're doing some Buffy level here, okay? Now, specific examples. Ethan's protectiveness of Jess. I think this, honestly, from my perspective, comes from the fact that he has this romantic, these romantic feelings towards Jess. His protectiveness of Jess comes off as a bit icky sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. What could be interpreted as him being a good friend in saying, like, please don't do this thing. Please don't go to Mexico. Please don't trust Liam. Feels a little <laughs> controlling, right? Especially when we get to the please don't trust Liam. It feels controlling. Honestly, even that whole scene with Ethan and Liam where they're talking toward the end of the show uh, or the end episodes, uh, they're talking about Jess and like it almost it's not it almost feels like Ethan's like giving Liam permission to like be with Jess. Like it's it, no, don't like it. OK, uh, next, Jess's lack of, quote unquote, having it all together is I feel like something we've talked about in this episode, but I feel like it's perceived as worse than even other characters in this series, such as like Liam. And I'm saying this from my own perspective as well, which like, I ugh, I don't like that, that I perceived it this way. Um, like, Jess, okay, you needed that storage unit job, right? I've said this a million times. I, I can't get over how like lackadaisical she was about that. You, you, she needed the money, okay? Don't throw that away versus my attitude towards Liam 
Liam being like, I don't want to be a server. I just want to sing. I was kind of like, I mean, the man wants to sing. <laughs> he has a nice voice. So like, uh, that's patriarchal in the context of the show, but also like in my view of it, which like we could go down a whole thing there about how I am still steeped in the patriarchy because we as a society are steeped in the patriarchy. I'm just going to move on to the next point. There's some patriarchy that honestly it's just difficult to get away from right and this goes back to my point of Jess being resilient when a character like Ben isn't really set up as much that way right the writers could have put a male in Jess's exact same situation with her DACA status and all of that and parents dying and they could have had that male character lead the show but I don't know if their like bravery or whatever would have been ascribed to like resilience right because at the end of the day he would have had stuff going against him but he would also have had it a little bit easier because as i've been saying he he would have been a man so i don't know overall though i will say the show did a good job with jess and her experiences of not having her be the victim of patriarchy in the same way that someone like abigail was Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. I'm bringing you back to this. Abigail, that was bad. Um, but because Jess is a woman, and because we, I am in this case, where I am looking at the patriarchy, I'm always going to find something. Right? I mean, also, it's going to sound really bad. If the patriarchal elements weren't there at all in a 10-episode season of a show that's supposed to be based in the real world... Would that not have been irritating in a way, too? Because, like, that is the real world? Yeah, it depends. You can look at something like Schitt's Creek, right? Homophobia does not exist in Schitt's Creek. That's just, It's not a thing in that town. And, like, the creators specifically said that is, it's not a thing. But, I agree. But this is, that that wasn't a show about the struggles of people who are yeah, like the true, the, the true, homophobia yeah. struggles of people who are gay. Like you can't have Edge of History, which is supposed to be about the challenges of a Latina woman, and not have the woman part. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. Yeah, I feel that. So yeah, <laughs> I mean patriarchy. It's here. I don't. I was gonna say it's here. It's queer. It's not. Um... <laughs> Literally not. Sorry, I'm jazz. Um. It's here. Uh, I don't like it. If you complained about this show because you wanted it to be more patriarchal, which, yes, if you were complaining about the fact that it was a female lead, that's what you were pushing towards, uh, reconsider your uh, thought processes, your biases, your life decisions. Anyway, Aubrey, Jess Valenzuela versus Lizette Oliveira. Can you give us a, a quick rundown of this? Yes, I always like ending these episodes with a comparison between the character and the person who portrays them. Are they similar? Are they different? It was really fun to do this with the National Treasure characters because there were like a lot of parallels between Nick Cage and Ben Gates. Um, So I wondered if the case would be the same here with Jess. Um, the, The bottom line up front, the bluff, as we say in my line of work, not a ton of similarities here uh, uh, beyond a surface level to my understanding and knowledge. So on the surface level side, 
just like Jess, Lizette's parents were born in Mexico, though Lizette herself was born in the United States. Um, For both the actor and the character, their shared heritage is very important to them. We see that in the story with Jess, and we have seen interviews where Lizette has said the same. Okay. Um, from here, we have to start extrapolating and stretching a little bit to make comparisons. You know, Lizette has told the story of um, her mom requiring convincing to allow her to pursue acting as a career, and then how excited her mom was when they jointly found out that she had landed the role of Jess. This maybe gives me Jess Manuela relationship vibes. Again, I'm kind of extrapolating because we never saw Jess and Manuela together on screen as characters, but I would certainly expect a like tough but loving dynamic between them two, right? Like you need to have some toughness as a single mom, I think. Um, You probably, there's probably some toughness and some scorn that we are meant to extrapolate because her mom was so critical of of Raphael in his absence. But of course, there's also a loving relationship here for many reasons, but not the least of which is the fact that Jess threw away everything to care for her mother, right? So I could see maybe a similar mother-daughter dynamic. Um, I will note, this is kind of a funny parallel, uh, that Lizette had previously been going by Lizette Alexis prior to Edge of History. Actually, I don't know if you remember this, M, but when it was first announced that she would be the lead, the announcement was Lizette Alexis will play the lead. Mm-hmm. But then she started going by Lizette Oliveira. Um, I think this is a funny parallel and <laughs> totally unintentional to the fact that the character of Jess was originally supposed to be Jess Morales. And then it became Jess Valenzuela in the final cut. So, like, in the same article, basically, that said Lizette Alexis will play Jess Morales. And then it ultimately ends up changing. Um, that being said, total side note, but I don't think you know this either. So I'm, I wouldn't, you know, just wanted to share. Upon researching this little section of the episode, I learned that Lizette's legal name is apparently Lizette Alexis Gutierrez. And if this is true, I am unyieldingly curious about the origins of Oliveira. Hmm. I know people who are from Mexico who go by either they use their middle name as their first name mm-hmm. or they use their like quote unquote middle name as their last name, mm-hmm. not like their actual last name. So like the yeah, the Alexis thing. I'm wondering, and I have no basis for this, if, like, maybe her, like, baptismal name or something was, like, Olivia or something. I don't know. Um, And that's where it came from. Or if there was, like, another relative that she was close to. Um, It always interests me, though, when, like, actors change their names for, like... I always wonder if it's, like, a PR reason, but then I also wonder, like, you know, like, wh- like why not go with the Gutierrez? Like, is that too... Did she consider that to be too stereotypically, like, Mexican? And she didn't want to be, like, put in a category? Like, I don't know. It's It's fascinating to me. Well, I always like to end these sections with... um a little 
speculation of like, if I could ask her something about this role, what would I ask? Um, and obviously I would ask about the origins of Oliveira out of sheer curiosity. But what I would really like to know um, is pretty simply, how did she get in the mindset of playing the Jess character? Because the Jess character seems to be on the surface pretty different from Lizette. Now, Lizette isn't a big enough name that we know a lot about her. Like, there's not tons of articles out there. Um, but, like, one of the things that has become very clear from to me is that Lizette fancies herself and is an artist. She's a singer. She's a dancer. Like, these are all things that are, like, well-known parts of her biography. Um, and I would argue that Jess as a character is not very artsy. Like she is the definition of an intellectual, like bordering, like if the FBI cryptanalysis thing didn't work out, I could see her being an academic, you know, that kind of thing. So like, I want to know how Lizette got herself into the mindset of playing that kind of character. I mean, especially as a young actor who probably doesn't have as much experience to go off of playing someone who's so different from herself. Ooh, I like that. So that wraps up this episode, Em. I think we've, this is definitely the most you and I have ever talked about, Jess, even in our like, even in offline conversation. So this has been a pretty cool exercise. I do wonder, and I guess folks are going to have to stick around to find out what we decide. Like, I wonder if we should do this for all five members of the Scooby gang in Edge of History eventually. Yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Let us know if you think we should do this exercise with our other characters from Edge of History. Tell us online. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We also have a website, uh, ntuntpodcast.com. Uh, everything but our bathroom schedules, as I now like to say. Uh, and we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Go ahead and uh, support us on there. Get some bonus content. So, uh, yeah, please check us out. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know your feelings. Uh, feel free to let us know your bathroom schedules if you feel like that's something you need to share. Um, Aubrey, what's our next episode? <laughs> I am pleased to report that our next episode is going to straddle the line between National Treasure and Edge of History because we are going to be breaking down the contents of Agent Peter Sadusky's storage unit featured in episode one of Edge of History, which includes plenty of callbacks to our favorite films so stick around for that you're not going to want to miss it but until then i'm aubrey and i'm emily and thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt